Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mike Sharp. I wanted to either make her laugh or I wanted to make her proud. And the way I could make her proud was to be the Mormonist Mormon who's ever Mormoned. So... (laughs) That and more. But before that... I have a huge announcement today. We made this announcement last week for our Patreon patrons because we want to give them advance notice of big announcements when we have them. But now we're letting everyone know we just signed a contract to publish a Risk book with Hachette Publishing. It's going to be coming out the summer of 2018. A Risk book. It's going to include 50 incredible true stories, some of the very best stories that have ever run on the podcast, and many that are brand new. You've never heard them on the podcast. We're going to have stories from lots of our celebrity friends, including new ones from celebrity friends, as well as, of course, ordinary people with extraordinary things to share. Now, we're going to let you know as soon as the book is available for pre-order, and we hope that you will pre-order copies for yourself, for your family, for your friends. You know, a lot of people are unable to listen to podcasts for this reason or that. Maybe they just don't like to or, or they just don't know how to. A lot of people out there are hearing impaired, so they don't really get a chance to hear the podcast. We want you to spread the word about the Risk book. There'll be an introduction by me and questions and answers. There's lots of extra good stuff in there. And we will let you know, like I said, as soon as we can about pre-ordering. I'm also going to be posting a huge, huge list of all the stories we're thinking of maybe including in the book. And you can vote on them. I'll let you know when we have a survey up of what you would like to have included in the book. So listen, thank you all so very much for your support. We could have not done this without you. We're working very hard on this project now, and we're super, super excited about it. Okay, now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Orgone behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Precarious. Three stories of emotionally loaded circumstances. I mean, for God's sakes, every every Risk story, is, it fits that description. And as always, there's some laughs, there's some gasps, there's some uh, tears. 
in this episode. And it's a hell of a day to be recording the hosting. Uh, we're hearing that at least 58 people were killed and over 500 people injured in a mass shooting in Las Vegas. I truly don't know what is ever going to change about this situation unless we, the people, march for it and get organized and activated about it like never before. We have seen activism making a difference when it comes to these, you know, Congress trying to pass these horrendous health care bills. So we should just keep that in mind. We, we have to stay as active as we possibly can about this and so much else. And we have to keep sharing our stories about our own life experience, what we cared most about, what we really found to be our personal truth. In a little bit, we are going to hear an absolutely beautiful story that was shared by Jane Steckbeck, but it was not shared at a Risk Live show. It was shared at a show put on by The Mystery Box in Portland, Oregon. We've featured many of their stories on the podcast at this point. They're at mysteryboxshow.com. And there is some sexual trauma in the second story on this episode, just to give you a heads up on that. But before that, we're going to start with one of our very favorites and one of your very favorites, Ray Christian. <laughs> Ray, Ray, we, I feel like we kind of discovered Ray uh, years ago. He was pitching stories various places and no one gave him a shot until Risk came along because we were like, what the fuck? What an amazing voice. What an amazing perspective. What an amazing life. Here's yet another one. Now, Ray has shared with us in North Carolina, in New York, and now in Los Angeles. This was the first time he'd ever shared a story in Los Angeles. And he had suffered a major stroke in, I think, the week or two before going to Los Angeles to share this story. He would not be stopped. And uh, he was just extraordinary out there. So this is Ray Christian at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles that we do once a month at the Bootleg Theater with a story we call Going Native. In 1980, I was a soldier in the Army stationed in South Korea with the 2nd Infantry Division. And when we weren't busy conducting combat patrols on a demilitarized zone or training, most of our time was occupied with the village or the ville or the small town that was outside of our base camp that catered to us in every possible way. Through hundreds of clubs, they created these artificial and stereotypical versions of American life. Each one of the clubs all had the same things in common, lots of alcohol and lots of prostitutes. Well, to alleviate this problem, these issues, these misunderstanding of culture, our commanders took two approaches to it. One of them was to deal with the situation head on 
And in cooperation with the Korean government, they devised a plan that all the prostitutes and all the clubs would be required to wear uniforms. In each of the club, all of the prostitutes wore distinctive uniforms, and on each of those uniforms, they each had a patch that had a number. That way, if you caught VD, you could go to the authorities and say, I got it from number seven at the Savoy Club because dumb GIs thought all Koreans looked the same. The other part of their genius plan to alleviate this problem was to place a giant billboard outside the gate when you went on past that listed the top 10 clubs for getting VD. (laughs) When you went outside the gate, you were also required to reach inside this huge bin and pick up a handful of condoms before you could go out the gate. And because soldiers had so many condoms and they had been grabbing them out of the box for so many years that they were required to do it, all the way from the outside of the gate, leading all the way across the road, across the tracks, left inside the village was this long trail of unopened, decomposing packages of condoms that had been on the ground for probably years and years. The second thing that our commanders decided to do to kind of help alleviate this problem was they constantly had speeches, had these workshops, they had these films, and they had these officers and people who came to speak to us about doing more than that while they were in Korea, to go out and experience the culture, to do what the Korean people were doing, to eat what the Korean people eat, to drink what the Korean people are drinking, to go on cultural tours, to learn more about the history, to turn right, not left, into the village. Well, one end of the month, it was a payday, and my wallet was full. It not only had American dollars in it, but it was also filled with Korean won. And at that time, the bills were really thick and fat. And my wallet was so thick that every time I would close it, it would just spring open, close it, spring open, close it, spring open. So I had my whole paycheck inside my wallet, all my money in cash. But I went outside the gate that day and I decided, you know what, I'm going to go right. And this is what we all collectively called going native. (laughs) I took the right turn, I walked through the village and I got to a small Mockley house. Mockley is a Korean drink, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Mockley at all? Uh, I would probably describe it as uh, alcoholic buttermilk. (laughs) So going native. I drank two quarts of Mockley. I ate 12 bowls of kimchi. <laughs> kimchi backbone, kimchi with rice. I ate the six month old kimchi. I ate the one year old kimchi. I ate the six year old kimchi, which had an immediate side effect. I found it necessary to exit the uh, Markley house through the back door. (laughs) I went out back and there was this small enclosure surrounded by cement. I assumed this was the bathroom. There was no running water. And inside there was this huge opening, but it was covered by a piece of plywood that had a smaller hole, a rectangle cut into it. I understood immediately this required me to squat down over this hole. 
I dropped my pants, I squatted down, I made some contact. <laughs> it wasn't wood. I assumed it was full. As soon as I dropped my pants, my wallet pops out. Down inside the hole. I have a dilemma. Whole month's pay, the whole. Whole month's pay. Well, I'm not an animal. I stuck my hand down in a hole. Can't waste no good money. Squish, squish. That's not it. <laughs> squish, squish. That's not it. Aha! I got it. It's my wallet. I pulled my wallet out. Oh my God, thank goodness. But this is a terrible situation. But I heard this cracking sound. You already know the story? The boy cracks, okay? I'm down inside the shit tank. It splashes in my face. And almost instinctively, I just started to cry. I wanted my mama. I crawl out, shoes come off. I'm not going back for the shoes. I walk back inside the Markley house. The Korean Ajima goes crazy. I go, I go, Karachogi, get the fucky out of here. They have no empathy for me. They make me walk back in the cold, back to the base. And as I'm walking back, totally dejected, smelling bad, I feel this something's in my ear. It's okay, it's okay. It was just a kernel of corn. <laughs> I get to the gate. I take out my wallet. I show the MP my ID card. He just looks in and goes, oh, damn, man, just oh, go, go right in, go right in. So I check my wallet, see how much money I lost. I look at the ID card and I notice it's not me. <laughs> so I, I, I took that right turn into the village. I learned more about the Korean people. I got into the bowels of the Korean people, the real soul, the essence of the Korean people. And I came away from that situation thinking, what do I know about the Korean people? What could I say about the Korean people after my time in Korea and falling in their shit? I would have to say the Korean people are spicy.
up with bathrooms in China? Okay, so I'm not gonna lie. I kind of have this fascination over squat toilets. One, two, three, squat! Let me tell you, I've had to use some pretty funky bathrooms while traveling. I'm still squatting because it's so important. I've definitely squatted on a lot of toilets, but look, you have to be careful, all right? You know the seats that go up and down for men and women, like that seat? So they don't have that seat. And then they also, they don't have the whole toilet. They don't have any of it. <laughs> Worry, a few pea sprinkles on your shoes is normal. Both, both hands in the air, arch in your back, in your back, bend your knees, bend your knees, back in. Ten years ago, I was done with sex. Done. I was standing in my kitchen one morning, and this thought came to me. I could go without sex for the rest of my life, and I'd be just fine. And the next thought, wow, Jane, that is incredibly fucked up. I had been withdrawing from my husband of over 17 years. I was avoiding hugging, kissing, cuddling, and whenever he tried to initiate sex, I pushed him away. I seemed to have a lot of difficulty giving him pleasure with my hands. I just didn't seem to know what to do. And it wasn't that he hadn't shown me, he was very patient. He had shown me many times how he liked to be touched. All I could seem to do was up and down, up and down, up and down. I knew there was more to it, and I felt like such a loser. We played out the same sorry script, too many mornings to count. We would wake up side by side, and in the soft morning light, he would begin to stroke me gently on my back, my arms, and then reaching over to this tender spot on my hip bone. But as soon as he started touching me, I contracted inside, and this voice would say, just go the fuck away. I never said those words, but my body more than effectively conveyed their meaning. In the early years of our marriage, my husband was sweetly persistent, and he would continue gently stroking, and eventually I'd roll over and we'd make love. And my behavior puzzled me. Because once the lovemaking started, I enjoyed the pleasure of our connection. I got into it. I had orgasms. But over time, my resistance increased. And over time, my husband got out of bed feeling sad, frustrated, and rejected. Even worse. 
was when he would try to talk to me about what was going on between us. And I would belittle his need. And I would tell him, hey, look, if you're horny, you got one of these, just go whack off. Mm. I could feel this distance growing between us. And I felt scared. I just didn't know what to do. And then one day, my husband got invited to attend a workshop on love, intimacy, and sexuality. And when he came home from that workshop, his face was glowing. And he took me by the hands and he looked me in the eyes and he said, I want you to come and do this workshop with me. I think it would be good for our marriage. It was the lifeline I needed. And also because I had no idea what the hell I was getting into, I said yes. <laughs> when we arrived at the workshop site in Northern California, oh my God, it was such a California scene. <laughs> I look out the window of the car and there are all these people hugging. And I turned to my husband and I said, I am so not fucking hugging strangers. <laughs> and he said, it's okay, you don't have to hug anybody. I said, okay. Sure enough, as soon as this workshop started, the facilitators invited us to circulate and hug our fellow workshop participants. <laughs> I'm not fucking hugging anybody. Instead, I bravely stuck my hand out and I walked around the room shaking hands with people. I got some bemused looks, but you know what did and didn't happen? What did happen is that people shook my hand and welcomed me. What did not happen is nobody did this and tried to come in and hug me. And in that space of this, being respected and this being respected. This place in my heart opened up and I stepped back and I watched these people hugging. I thought, it's not so bad. And then this little pipsqueak of a voice inside of me spoke up and she said, oh, I want this. I want this. And by the next morning, I was freely getting and giving hugs. And I felt like a part of me was coming back to life. Later that day, the facilitators introduced a remarkable exercise. And in this exercise, they explained to us that at times in our lives, we receive hurts at the hands of members of the opposite sex. And this exercise would, would give us a chance to talk to a member of the opposite sex and talk about a way where we had been hurt in the past. And the listener was just going to offer compassionate listening, not make any comments back. My husband asked if I would be his partner. I said, sure. I thought he was going to talk about his mother. I never saw this coming. 
We sat down together, and he took me by the hands. And he said, I want to try to do this exercise a little bit differently, and I want to see if you can go with me. Can you try to keep an open mind and not be defensive? <laughs> okay. <laughs> he continued, I'm going to talk about the person who hurt me generically. I'm going to refer to her as my wife. <laughs> Can you listen? I said I would try. He began, I love my wife and I want to be connected to her. And at times my wife is remote and she won't let me hug her or cuddle with her or make love to her. My wife doesn't seem to understand that for me, making love has more of a spiritual connection and it's a way I connect to her deeply. I miss my wife and I want that connection. By this time, tears were streaming down both of our faces. He continued, but what hurts the most is when I try to talk to my wife about my needs, she belittles me and she tells me to just go whack off. And for the first time in 17 years, I heard my husband's pain. I don't know if it was the workshop setting, the raw vulnerability he showed, or that unique approach he took. But whatever it was, I heard him. And I understood for the first time that sex was not about him using my body to get off, that sex was about connectivity and spirit and a depth before that I hadn't been able to understand. And I understood that I wanted that too. And I also understood that by telling him to just go whack off, I was being extremely hurtful. I had started attending workshops in order to heal my marriage, and I continued in order to start working on myself. At our next workshop, a year or so later, we entered into another amazing exercise. In this exercise, the facilitators asked us to form groups of four, two men and two women. They explained that men and women really don't get to know each other on a deeper, more authentic level, that we really often resort to cultural constructs about men and women. In this exercise, we were going to share with our partners, women were going to talk about what is it like to be in a woman's body, to have breasts, to have the capacity to give birth, to have a vagina. Men were going to talk about what is a man? What's the experience of being a man? What's it like to have a penis? In the second part of the exercise, they said that we were going to take turns looking at one another's genitalia and talking about it. Okay, I see the looks. I see where your minds are going. Let me set the record straight. 
this was not some cheap grown-up version of you show me yours, I'll show you mine. <laughs> the atmosphere in that room was exceptionally reverential, respectful, and vulnerable. And it seemed like a great opportunity to really connect with men and men and women. Sounds great, right? I couldn't do it. I could not do this exercise. And when they first introduced it, I turned to my female partner and I started being scornful. I said, I don't want to sit around and talk with some guys about their dicks. I know what a dick is. God, I know what a dick does. What do I have to do? Talk about a dick. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, I was cracking dick jokes. This was not my finest hour. <laughs> When the exercise started, though, we walked into the room where these men were laying nude. I told you it was a California thing. <laughs> and everybody, you know, you could see everything. Their penises were out. Nobody had an erection. But the energy shifted for me. And I felt like I wasn't in my body anymore. I felt like I was floating above the room. At one point, I actually stopped and I looked down to see that I was still there. And when I looked down, I said, something's really wrong. And I excused myself. I stepped out of the room, which you're totally permitted to do. Three hours later, in a large group processing session, I was hit with a flashback of stunning clarity. And in that flashback, I was 12 years old. I was walking from my yard to a neighbor's house to ask an older neighbor boy for a motorcycle ride, something I had done many times before. This time, when I got to his house, he was not in the garage, but he heard me and he called me into the house. I walked down a hallway following his voice. I followed his voice into a bedroom. He was laying with his pants down. He was laying with his penis out, and he was masturbating. He called me over to him, and when I got over to him, he grabbed my hand and he put it on his penis, up and down, up and down, up and down. And when he was finished, he handed me a dollar and told me not to tell anyone. It was our little secret. And when that flashback hit me, I understood three things. I understood that seeing those men with their penises out, though there was no erection, that it triggered the trauma of that experience. And I understood that that floating sensation I had was what we call dissociation. It's how we survive trauma. And I understood that I was going to have to go back and repeat that workshop so I could get rid of that trauma. Just over a year later, I in fact went back to that same workshop. And this time when I went in, I talked to about five different people, and I told them what had happened. And I said, will you support me? And they all said, of course. So when the exercise started, I had a team of supporters, my female partner and a group of assistants and a facilitator, 
all surrounded me. And this time, when I got to the men laying down, I didn't leave my body. But I got about a foot away and I froze. And I started shaking and trembling and crying. And a few seconds later, I lost control of my legs and I dropped to my knees. And at the foot of this man, I sobbed. And someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, Jane, you don't have to do this. And I turned and I said, yes, I do have to do this. I have to get rid of this trauma. And in that safe space, surrounded by all those people holding me, I sobbed out all the pain, all the betrayal, all the sadness. And it felt like I was returning back to myself. And bless that man that I was partnered with. I mean, how many men in the room can imagine some woman crying at his feet, not wanting to run the hell out the door? This man held space for me. And when my tears subsided, he started talking to me about what it was like to be a man, what it was like to be in his body. And after a while, we were connected in deep eye contact. And then I saw this glint in his eye, and he got playful. And he picked up his penis. And he starts drugging it around, talking about Mr. Happy, and then he's stretching his scrotum, and I busted out laughing. And in this laughter, with tears still streaming down my face, I felt this lifetime of trauma lift and go. But the best part, the best part, is when I went home. And I asked my husband, will you please show me one more time how you like to be touched? Will you risk that for me one more time? And he did. And through adult eyes, not the traumatized eyes of a 12-year-old, I could finally see how he liked to be touched. It wasn't this. It was this beautiful symphony of varied and fluid movement. And I watched him, awestruck, joyful. And then I took over. And I took my husband to Climax. And afterwards, we lay curled up together on our sides. And I heard that voice again, you know, that little pipsqueak, I want that. Only this time, she said peacefully, yes, this. If I was there right from the start To feel what it was like to be turned on If you 
This is Risk. This is Ivan and Alyosha behind me now. And we just heard from the remarkable Jane Steckbeck, who you can find at jane-steckbeck.squarespace.com. She is a clinical sexologist and certified sex coach living in Oregon. And don't forget to check out mysteryboxshow.com as well. Now, let's take just a moment here to talk about Stamps.com, folks. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com makes it easy. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. There's no need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale with no long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now, our final story comes to us from our recent appearance in Salt Lake City. This is Mike Sharp, who is actually from, I think he's from Boise. He, he says he's told stories before at Story Story Night in Boise, and you can find him on Twitter at Sharp208. Here is Mike Sharp with a story we call Out of the Cave.
So I was in my childhood home, back up against the wall, pinned, unable to move because of a gaze coming from across the room. You see, my mom was the sweetest woman you'll ever meet. But when she got mad, she had this way of looking at you that totally kept you from moving or budging an inch. She'd put her hand under her face this way, and she'd look through you, and you'd be unable to speak. See, what she was doing was trying to figure out exactly what she was going to do next. And usually her options were either murder you or cry. And I knew the option I was going to get in this situation because I had just broken her heart. So I walked across the room and I stood next to her lazy boy and I put my arm around her awkwardly trying to comfort her however I could as she sobbed. And it was one of those full body cries that comes from your soul. And I think part of the reason why this was so personal for her was because she never expected it to come from me. I had come that day to tell her I had made the decision to leave the LDS church. And when you do that, the LDS church is much more than just a religion. You're leaving a family. The family is supposed to be together forever, and she was the matriarch of this family. She had built everything around this perspective that we were going to spend eternity together, and I was making the decision that I didn't want to be a part of that. She never thought I would be the kid to make that kind of decision. I was the eighth of eight. I was the baby of the family. When she had me, I w she was 38 years old, so she had spent like her entire 20s and 30s being pregnant. I was the first kid that she had that she could play with without another kid inside her. Like, that's a big deal. It, it helped our relationship. We, we immediately connected, and we had this incredible relationship from day one. I remember when my brothers and sisters would go off to school, there would be these special days where my mom would come over and she'd get down on the floor, which wasn't easy for her because she had lupus and fibromyalgia, and getting down on the floor wasn't super easy. But she'd put Mario 3 into the Nintendo, and then she'd give me the first controller. And when you're the eighth of eight kids, you don't get to be Mario. <laughs> so like, this was a huge, I barely even got to be Luigi. And when I got that opportunity, it was like 30 seconds, done, lives over, they're moving on. But my mom would just sit on the floor and we'd laugh. And it would probably only last 15 minutes until all our lives were gone, but we had a blast. And then she'd get up and she'd go to the kitchen. She'd get me my favorite snack when I was that age, three or four years old, in my little red cup that I used to drink pickle juice. It's disgusting. I can't believe I used to drink it. But she thought it was so funny, and she would laugh and grimace at me drinking this pickle juice. But I always made her laugh. I did these weird things that were sort of inappropriate, and that was our relationship. She didn't want to laugh. She didn't want to encourage me, but she'd smile, and then she'd start laughing because she didn't know what else to do. I was a talkative little shit. That's what they do. And I knew I wanted to either make her laugh or I wanted to make her proud. And the way I could make her proud was to be the Mormonest Mormon who's ever Mormon. So I wanted Joseph Smith to like want to be me. I wanted Mitt Romney to tell me to cool it. Like I was going to be Mormon. So I buckled down and I read all the books. I was going to have temple marriage. I was going to go on a mission and million houses full of babies. It was all set to plan, and I almost got there until I got to high school, and I took a class called political philosophy. And I walked into the class on day one, and I was expecting to, like, prove Plato's theory of forms wrong day one. Like, I was, I knew everything. 
And so I walked in, and I remember in the first week, we were discussing Alexis de Tocqueville. And we were talking about democracy in America. And I raised my hand, and I was like, look, guys, this guy's wrong for one very important reason. You can't criticize democracy because God wrote the Constitution. See? You're not thinking. <laughs> and so my teacher pulled me aside at the end of class, and he was like, you know, I was thinking I was going to get some sort of gold star. And he said, Mike, you're going to fail this class and you're doing a real bad job. And I was taken aback. I was like, okay, number one, I am talking by far the most. Number two, I know what I'm talking about. And number three, I'm right. And he was like, well, you're right about one of those things. You are talking a lot. You just sound like a fucking idiot. Because you're not reading the texts. You're not reading anything. You're not understanding anything. You're just coming in and fighting. And you sound dumb. So what I need you to do is go home tonight and try one more time to read the text and cut your umbilical cord. It's like, I don't care that you're religious. That's fine. I'm religious too. But what I need you to do is read the text for what the text says and then debate it on its merits. And if you finish with your own beliefs, finish with your own beliefs, but you won't look so dumb. And I was like, all right, well, at least he was candid. So I went home and I remember the book we were reading was Plato's Republic. And that night, the reading was The Allegory of the Cave. And if you've never read The Allegory of the Cave, I don't know, watch The Matrix. It's pretty much the same thing. It's, it's more interesting, a lot more kung fu. But that night was, I'd spent my entire life waiting and reading all these religious books, waiting for like this religious transformation. And then it's a secular philosophical book that takes me to my next level. See, The Allegory of the Cave, from my understanding at that point in my life, was that Everybody's born into this cave. And everything you see and everything you know and everything you understand is something somebody else wrote on the walls of that cave for you. You may think you've seen a tree, but really you've just seen what somebody else drew years ago on the cave. The only way you're ever going to know anything is to get out of the cave and go see a tree for yourself and come to your own understanding. And I had my earth shattered in that moment. I was 17 years old. I had never considered I could be wrong. I thought for the first time holy shit, I could be wrong about everything. And so from that point on, I was reading all kinds of philosophy. I was excelling in the class and having a blast. But that little peg was getting harder and harder to fit. Trying to fit all my new beliefs into my old beliefs became more and more difficult. And what I found was I was just terrified that the church was true. I didn't believe the church was true. And so eventually, after three years of tearing my soul apart, thinking I was going to hell, I finally made the decision it was time for me to go. And my mom was the first person I went and talked to about it. You saw how that went. So things changed between us a little bit. I mean, she was still my mom. I'd still go and visit, but we didn't laugh as much. Things weren't as jovial. I felt uncomfortable. My family was actually very welcoming to me in this new world that I was trying to figure out everything I believed. I was lucky. A lot of people don't have that opportunity. Then my mom started getting sick. She had this really deep pain in her stomach, and the doctors weren't really listening to her about it. What we found out is she had cirrhosis of the liver without ever drinking. It's very rare and really ironic. So one day she calls me and she says, I'm called the ambulance. I need to go. Will you come be with me? And I'll never forget that night driving behind her in the ambulance. And it was the perfect time of night where it's dusk and the lights in another vehicle enable you to just see right through. So I drove, and through my windshield, I could see her sickly old face in the back of the ambulance, and I knew 
she's not leaving the hospital this time. This was 2011. I didn't have a job. She was in downtown Boise. I lived in downtown Boise. I was able to spend every day at the hospital with her. And things started getting good again. I would sit next to the bed and hold her hand, and we'd watch TV together, and we'd make jokes. I told her about this girl I was dating, and she told me, you know what? Take the leap. So I went downstairs at the hospital and proposed to my girlfriend. And my mom got the chance to hold the ring up in her hand and compare it to her ring, and she glowed. It was an amazing moment that she got to see that. Then the doctors came in and they said, look, we've got to do the surgery. I don't know if you've ever seen these shows where somebody's like pinned up against the tree by a car. They're kept alive by this car, but you can't live against the tree. Eventually, you've got to move the car. They had to do the surgery, and we all knew what was coming. So we all took our chances to say goodbye. My mom's last words to me were, Mike, I need you to be strong. I'm ready to go, but I don't think you're ready to let me go. She was not wrong. I was not a happy camper about this whole situation. She got the surgery. She immediately went into a coma. She was in a coma for the last three days of her life. And on the last day, the doctors came in and said, look, the moment's getting near. Get your siblings together. This is going to be when you're going to want to be as a whole. So we're all in this big hospital room, and her breathing is rattly. The sounds she's making aren't really human. They're guttural. Her eyes are this deep, dark yellow that have rolled back to the back of her head. And we haven't seen him for three days. She hasn't responded to anything. And I'm standing in the back of the room thinking, God, what do I get after this? There's nothing. So I decided I'm not going to waste this moment. And I walked forward and I grabbed a hold of my mom's hand. And yeah, she didn't grab back, but it was warm. My mom was still there. So I lifted her hand and I kissed it. She felt like my mom. I leaned forward and I kissed her forehead and it was sweaty, but she had the same perfume that she wore from Avon from the time I was a baby. She smelled like my mom. And then this thing happened that to this day I have no scientific explanation for, but other people saw it happen, so I believe it was real. But my mom's head turned, and I swear to God, everybody else disappeared at that moment, and it was just the two of us. And her eyes opened, and they were no longer yellow. They were the eyes I'd looked into my entire life. And she looked me in the eyes, and we had this connection. And there was a message there, and they weren't words. But it was a message of peace, and it was a message of comfort. And we looked at each other for like 40 seconds. And she died looking into my eyes. And then everybody started coming back. And I started hearing the sounds of crying and the signs of wailing. And it hit me that this hand I was holding now was... It's a corpse. My mom's gone. In a few days, she's going to be put into the ground six feet under, and the worms are going to eat her, and this was my last chance. And so I stepped away, and I tried to run, and my legs gave out, and I fell to the hospital floor, sobbing into this cold, damp floor, damp because of my tears, and the rest was just a haze. I don't remember anything else from that night until I got home, and I stepped out in my back porch and I called my friend to tell him what had happened because he wanted to keep updated. And I said, Dave, you know, she passed away. I mean, what do you say to me in that situation? He just sat awkwardly. And then something weird happened. I mean, the worst joke you could possibly make and so uncomfortable and inappropriate. But I said, you know, Hannah and I have been talking. We decided if we ever have a girl, we're going to name her after mom. 
He was like, Mike, that's a beautiful sentiment. She would be so honored. And I was like, yeah, we just can't decide if it's like mom sharp or mommy sharp or do we shorten it to ma? And he gets so quiet. And then he starts laughing. And I start laughing. And that moment of awkwardness was broken. And it hit me then that my mom didn't love me because I was reading the Book of Mormon faster than anyone else. She loved me because I was inappropriate, because I was going to tell that joke. She would have loved that joke. (laughs) She loved me because I was that weird little kid who wanted to drink pickle juice and sit with his mom and play video games. That's all I wanted. She loved me because I was her baby. And yeah, I don't get to go home tonight and think I'm ever going to see her again. And that sucks. But I do have a little girl named after her who I have a silly relationship with. And I get to see my mom every single day in my relationship with my daughter because she molded me and she created me. And that's worth crawling out of a cave for. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is tom petty behind me now this song has nothing to do with the story we just heard but we are hearing that well there's been a confusing mix of stories today but what we're hearing now i think is that tom petty is on life support so he is in our hearts I'm going to read to you now all the places that Risk is appearing next live. And for all intents and purposes, we are still taking pitches for all of these shows. On October 21st, we are at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. The theme that night is Scary Stories. So if you live near L.A., and you have a very scary kind of Halloween-ish story (laughs) to share, pitch us. On October 22nd, we are at Littlefield. This will be the first time we've ever performed at Littlefield in Brooklyn. The theme on October 22nd is also scary stories. So if you live near Brooklyn and you have a scary Halloween-ish story, pitch us for October 22nd at Littlefield. On November 3rd, we are in Baltimore. We're back in Baltimore on November 3rd. The theme is Obsession. On November 9th, we're in Chicago. The theme is Revealing. On November 10th, Madison, Wisconsin. Our first time ever in Madison on November 10th. The theme is Huge. And on November 11th, we're in Detroit. And the theme is Surprise. December 2nd, we're in Phoenix. 
The theme is jaw-dropping. So like I said, go to risk-show.com slash submissions to pitch us your stories for any of those shows. And you might be up on stage and you might end up on the podcast. So pitch us, risk-show.com slash submissions. You can also find all of our educational services at thestorystudio.org. We have one-on-one training we do over Skype. We have in-person workshops. We have workshops you can download and do in your own time, uh, just watching videos and downloading worksheets. That's all at thestorystudio.org. We also do corporate training. We have clients like GE and Pfizer and Citibank and Google and American Express and USA Today and so many more. Our corporate workshops are exploding in popularity right now. So check us out at thestorystudio.org. Finally, make sure to spread the word about Risk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are at Risk Show. You can leave comments in our Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. You can give us reviews on iTunes. Those help a lot. They help bring attention to the podcast. If you leave a good review on iTunes, you can also comment on all the episodes on their actual listen pages where the table of contents live on our site at risk-show.com. So spread the word and don't forget about all that bonus content you could get if you become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Here's donkey purring.